0: Uh, if you got a Bible tonight, we are in John 18, we have been, we took a little week, took a week off, last week was more of a just kind of a short devotion uh, look back at a prayer that Jesus prayed, but we're back in John 18 uh, for our second uh, look at this chapter, and this is going to be a, a difficult chapter, it's a difficult chapter to read, it's a difficult chapter to preach, um, the latter half of the message will get more practical, but up front I just want to kind of unpack what goes down in this chapter uh, what goes down on what I believe is the darkest night in the history of the world. Um, the darkest day of creation was preceded by the darkest night of creation uh, on the Thursday night um, of uh, the 30 A.D. Um, of the month of Nisan, which is around March for us. Um, the week of uh, the week of Passover. Um, a night that normally was uh, a joyous night for the people of Israel uh, was, was not so much, not so joyous. It was a dark night, especially for one who had been a very bright light to the land for his three years of ministry. Of course, that being Jesus. Uh, in many ways, the sun never came up the next day, the morning after this night. Even considering all the, of this being God's plan, it was, it's still a bit overwhelming to hear and almost it's impossible to comprehend because I just want you to I want you to understand this with me and you all know this but I did some time to reflect on all that we've done so far in John I don't know um, I love preaching all the Bible but uh, the last year we've done we've been in this for whole, for over a year it would have been over sooner but we took the whole summer off obviously but we've spent over a year John in these Sunday night services and I promise you if uh, if if, if you if you've been here for these you've gotten the best that God offers and the best that God has to say to us Um, you don't want to miss uh, what God continues to say to us in these books but in these chapters but from John 1 to John 17 for the first 17 chapters of John Jesus has been a spotlight he has been in the spotlight Um, he has demonstrated his divinity his godness he's proclaimed his divinity he stood before thousands and he's dined with a dozen. Everyone who has encountered Jesus has confessed him to be from God. Everyone who's encountered Jesus has, rumor, has whispered and mused that he might be more than just from God. He might be the Messiah of God. He might even be God in a body if that's possible. Crowds formed around him. Meetings were called to discuss him. There's never been a more polarizing figure than Jesus Christ. The masses demanded him to be their king, while only a few dared to resist him. At first, he spoke only privately in small settings, but eventually there were too many stories about him for him not to be noticed, for him not to be heralded as somebody special. As Jesus' ministry got started, uh, there were whispers of him being the final and definitive word from God. John begins the book by saying in the beginning was the was God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the word was God and Jesus John would say and everyone who met him would say this they didn't know how to they didn't really know how to explain it how to articulate it they just said if God has a final word If God has a definitive word, if God were to say one thing and one thing only to us, it would be the person of Jesus and everything that comes out of his mouth. He is the fulfillment. He is the final and definitive word and message from God to people rumors begin to fly that Jesus may be the long-awaited favor from God the Old Testament is a story of the Jews chasing after the divine blessing the anointing from God the blessed the christening from God that he would give to certain people to the oldest son in the family they wanted this to be on all of them and they believed the Messiah could bring it to them and they believed that Jesus could be the long-awaited grace upon grace from God and then Jesus, became known as and was referred to as the lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world a spotless lamb who wouldn't just temporarily pardon sins but would forever wash them away how would he do this nobody knew but they believed that he might have the solution that they were looking for claims began to go around that jesus was a brand new platform as in he was better he was more important than the temple he was a new foundation for the faith of israel for the people of israel for the whole world he was a new platform to build a relationship with god um he was the new wine the old wine was always always came short of bringing true joy but jesus brought the new wine He sat down with Israel's elite. He spoke of how one might receive eternal life. He talked about how you can enter the kingdom of God, being born again. He crossed the border and met with a Samaritan woman and spoke of the soul-quenching water of life that only he could give. He convinced a man to step out of line at a festival, challenging the bankrupt religious system that put views before use, rituals before individuals. And by this point, Jesus was being positioned as an alternative to the temple, as an alternative to the Jewish faith. People began to go to him instead of going. To the Jewish temple, to the Jewish religion, Jesus offered something that the religion of the Jews did not offer and would never offer. So crowds began to gather to see what Jesus would say about these these, these opinions of him and these ideas of him and the idea that he might be the one they've been waiting for. Of course, he had a lot to say and he did not deny any of that. He actually gave them even more to run with. He said on one occasion, I am the bread of life. You have chased after everything of this world to give you what the hunt, to, to, to quench the hunger that you have to bring you what you need in your heart. Only I can give you what your soul is looking for. Only I can fulfill you and give you purpose. You must chew on my flesh and drink my blood and you will have what you're looking for. He stood on the temple mount one day when they condemned a woman caught in adultery and he said, I am the light of the world shining into the world full of sin and full of darkness. And anyone, even this woman, can have her eyes open and her heart changed." by me. He would go on to speak to a crowd in John 10 and he would say, I am the door to life. The sheep entering the sheepfold, entering the, the, the pasture. They come through me. They go out and they come in by me and me only. And I am the good shepherd. I lay down in the door because I give my life up for the sheep. No wolf or no ravenous beast or no hireling will come after my sheep because they'll have to step over my body to get to them. I am the door and I am the shepherd. We know, of course, in Jewish, in, in Jewish custom, the good shepherd would not just guard the door. He would lay down in front of the door because he was the door. Jesus, of course, gave the people a lot to think about when he said he was not just the shepherd. He was the door. He was the way to get to God. He said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He said in John 14, I am the way, truth, and the life. He said in John 15, I am the true vine from God. So that which is dead can be brought back to life through me, only through me. can can You can be connected to God, find that relationship with God. He is the, the vine dresser. I am the vine and you are the branches. And through that, we connect and have our unity with God only through him. He did not mince his words. He did not hide his claims to be from God, not just from God, but equal to God, the true and only representation of God. So when you get to John 12 and you get to John 13 and 14 and you hear Jesus teach all these things, you're thinking, I mean, you don't just leave the room thinking Jesus is just away. You have the understanding and the full assurance that he is God in flesh and nobody, nobody can convince us otherwise. And why would we ever waste our time looking to anything or anyone else in terms of fulfilling our heart's desire and reaching heaven and a relationship with God? There is no other way to eternal life. There is no other way to live in this life. The religious leaders were resigned to have lost the people to him. In John 12, they say the world has gone after him. But then, it's just completely, it's unbelievable. And then it just stops the movement ends the crowds go away jesus sends them away a parade is thrown to celebrate him as the messiah and jesus defers the glory defers the attention defers the fame and says i'm out of here and you're reading the story and you're thinking this should be the this should be the next this should be the climax of the story and then he just shuts the door in their face and he goes to a private room with the 12 and he continues to reveal himself to the people to his 12 he shows god's plan to them he does so many wonderful things in front of them, but he does all this with some sort of resignation, with a finality in his voice. As they move from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane, everybody knew that something was not as it should be. This is not how the story should be going. This should be going a different way. Of course, we know the story. He bows in the garden of Gethsemane to pray. John was close enough to hear and realize the things that he prayed, and he heard some of the things Jesus was saying, and he knew things were about to get very dark. Jesus spoke of a darkness that was coming where his disciples would be caught off guard, but where he would be very much still in charge. Only he would submit for a little while so that all things could transpire as God had intended them. And this is where the story just doesn't make sense to mere minds like ours. No one knew what this meant. No one wanted to believe it. No one wanted to, under, no, wanted to accept that Jesus literally was surrendering to darkness. If you read John 1-17, through 17, it seems impossible that anything could derail the Jesus movement. Anybody, nobody could stop the Jesus train. Nothing could stop Jesus. There was nothing that he could not do. He had shown the ability to open the eyes of the blind. He had shown the ability to raise the dead. Nothing could stop him. But this begs the question, what was he waiting on? Why bide your time when time is in your hand? Everyone that was a part of the Jesus movement would ask him, Jesus, what are you waiting on? Why wait when nothing can get in your way? And this is why the disciples begin to wonder. This is why Judas exited the room. Because they begin to, to get a little nervous. They begin to get a little restless because the movement they thought was going to take off, the kingdom they expected to arrive, wasn't coming anytime soon. And they believed, they realized finally that it wasn't coming at all. Not, that they, not the way they thought it would. But there was this darkness that Jesus kept talking about. If he was the light, couldn't he dispel the darkness forever? Couldn't he snap his fingers and get rid of all evil and all the darkness and all the enemies of the world? Couldn't he bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men? Of course he could. That's what he came to do. But the problem was that if he was to dispel darkness, every person would suffer judgment because we all love darkness rather than light because the darkness of sin is within all of us. And if Jesus were to snap his fingers and get rid of all darkness, he would get rid of all of us. That's what we continue to uncover as we hear Jesus speak throughout John. There was something in between us and God and Jesus came to deliver us from this darkness, from this sin from this bondage. Back in John 8, Jesus said that if you trust in me and abide in me, you will be set free. Of course, the indignant Jewish leaders said, we've never been enslaved before. What are we enslaved to? Not realizing they had been enslaved for hundreds of years to different people throughout the Old Testament. But spiritually speaking, they were enslaved to sin. They were in bondage to sin. And Jesus said, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. You can be washed from your sin. The stone can be rolled away. But unless I do something about your sin... This will not happen. So while Jesus went on to proclaim himself as the great I am from God with the ability and the majesty that anyone would expect the I am from God, the majesty, the Messiah from God to have, Jesus could not just initiate that kingdom that everyone expected because there was something that would keep us from it. For us to be born again, something had to be done for us. Our sin stood in the way. How would Jesus remove our sin? He would shine the light of heaven into darkness. He would challenge it and submit himself to it. Believing that, being confident that, he would overcome it. Of course, there were no guarantees. You can imagine that Satan, with his chokehold on the world, began to tremor at the thought that Jesus might offer the world this salvation in full. Satan knew that for Jesus to truly set the world free, to do what he bragged about having the power to do back in John 5, John 8, John 10, and John 12, he would have to wade into the darkness, into the source of the captive's bondage. We all know the stories in the Gospels. There are many demons in the Gospels. Many demon-possessed people in the Gospels. It's no surprise, as the Son of God had stepped onto the pages of history, Satan sent many demons to counter God's presence. And yet Jesus would spray a little heaven's power on those individuals and on those demons to show what he was going to do in one fell swoop. But would it work? Satan was willing to take the chance to come at Jesus, to put an end to the light forever. Jesus was willing to temporarily turn off his light so that he might dispel darkness forever. So in John 18, we see Jesus and Satan. We see the darkness and we see the light. We see God and the enemy come at one another and lock horns. And Satan is willing to take the bait that Jesus is offering him because Satan believes, who knows, what if this works? What if we can't kill the Son of God and turn the lights off forever? Of course, foolishly, he would think that. Jesus, of course, had a plan a plan that no one would have believed was possible and no one did believe was doable beforehand. So these two plans begin to unfold in John 18 as darkness falls on Passover and death begin to prowl as it did that original Passover night, circling the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we re-enter the story as Judas leads an enraged mob to arrest Jesus John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came, with, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would happen come upon him, went forward and said to them, "'Whom are you seeking?' They answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered and said, I told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? This story is so rich, and there's so much going on here that we got to bring some other verses from Matthew and Luke to get the full picture. Here, here's what Matthew and Luke tells us: Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant struck the servant on the high of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, "Put your sword back into the place, for the, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword." As in Is that weapon? Is this really a time uh, to fight? Is this really a time to raise your weapon? I I don't think so. Do you not think? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions or 10,000 angels? Of course, they didn't know that. They underestimated Jesus' ability, because why would Jesus just surrender why would the Son of God, the Messiah from God, just surrender and throw all that he had worked so hard for away? And bigger, bigger part of the story is, why would he do this to the disciples? Peter and the gang are thinking, why would you do this to us, Jesus? We've been there, we followed you, we believed in you, and now you're going to throw all this away? Don't you know what that's going to cost us? <laughs> of course, we knew what it would cost Jesus. Luke goes on and says, Jesus said no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. I don't know if he picked it up off the ground or he just touched the hole on the side of the guy's head. I think it's important to note that Peter was not trying to cut the guy's ear off. Nobody, You don't try to cut someone's ear off. Peter obviously aimed for the guy's neck. Peter, being a fisherman, was very erratic with his swing. <laughs> and I guess the guy kind of did a duck and dive and it cost him his ear, not his neck, not his head. Of course, Jesus shows his defiance to Peter by picking up the enemy's ear and putting it back on or touching the hole on the side of his head and healing him. Can you just imagine the resolve? Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me as against a robber? I mean, what's the clubs and the swords for? I mean, am I, am I some dangerous threat? He says... Every day I was with you in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. He says, you could have got me in the temple, but you didn't because you were scared of the crowds, but also because you aren't taking me. I'm surrendering. You think you're in control? I have given you this opportunity. I am laying my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I want to talk about this, though, for a little bit. Jesus puts himself up for contrast against his disciples. Our nature is to self-preserve, self-defend, which is normal, and in many cases, it's biblical. But Jesus shows us a higher plane that we can't arrive at, a higher tier that we can ascend to by faith. He models to us something on this darkest night that I think is so heavenly and divine that you might not think it's possible for you But it's worth looking at. Jesus is en route to wage a different kind of warfare on this night. 2 Corinthians 10 says that we as well have these weapons of our warfare. They're not of the flesh. They're not carnal. But they're of divine power to bring down the strongholds of the enemy and of darkness. Now listen, this shouldn't be and is not about self-defense. There's obviously biblical precedent and responsibility for that. But Jesus shows us in this moment that we are not to live in fear. We do not live with our shields up or our fingers on the trigger. We walk with wisdom and confidence in God. Think about this. Jesus had just said, I am, and they fell over. If he wanted to wipe these guys out, not only could he call the legions of angels, he could just speak the name of God and they would be gone. So when Peter pulls this sword out, there's more to this story of what's going on in Peter's heart. Luke tells us that all the disciples asked, hey, can we bring a sword? Should we kill these people? And Jesus had to dismiss them and say, no, no, no. This is not time for that. He told us in Matthew that those that take up the weapons of this world will die by them. But those who take up spiritual weapons will live by them. See the difference? Those who ingrain and entrench themselves in the fight of this world of flesh and blood about the here and now, Those who take up those weapons will die. But those who take up the spiritual weapons of faith, of peace, of the Spirit of God working in our lives, those who have the confidence to face the enemy and do not fear what he has against us or on us, those will truly live. Now this is rare air for many Christians to live in. There's no judgment for those of you or those of us, most of us, that don't live at this place. But can you imagine being Jesus and staring hell in the eyes and not blinking? I don't blame Peter for swinging. Don't blame him at all. I don't blame anybody for swinging or for pointing. But I think there's something we can learn from the resolve that Jesus has in this moment as ice water flows through his veins. His veins. Peter and the other tw- other ten are resisting what Jesus is embracing. This tension is what we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus told, back us, told us back in John 12 about a kernel of wheat falling to the ground to find true life. Probably the most repeated sentence in the New Testament, maybe even the Bible, is a verse that is found in Luke 17. It's found all over the Gospels. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life we'll keep it. Loses his life for the sake of God, for the sake of the gospel. I want to talk about this. You know what that means? Nobody has ever been able to cheat death. You can get the best doctor. I don't mean this to offend anybody or bring up bad things. This is just reality. I don't need me to tell you this. You can get the best doctor. You can have the best medicine. You can take care of yourself to the nth degree and you'll still lose your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of yourself, you shouldn't work out, you shouldn't be healthy, you shouldn't be smart, you shouldn't defend yourself. I'm just stating stating a fact. Whoever seeks to preserve their life will eventually lose it. You might say, well, I'll live longer than somebody that doesn't preserve their life. That's okay, but Jesus is just saying it's inevitable. Your life is temporary. But whoever loses their life for the sake of God, for the cause of God. They're the ones that really find it and actually keep it. What's he mean by that? Those that refuse to live in fear and live in this self-preservation frame of mind. Those who come to the conclusion that if we're going to lose this life eventually anyways, why not spend what's left of it on what will last forever? You track with that? If we're going to lose it anyway, if it's going to be gone eventually someday anyways, why not live what's left and spend what's left on what will last forever? Rather than wasting it trying to preserve something that is not going to last. Jesus continually shows us that he's willing to lose in order to gain, not just for himself, but for all of us. And while this principle may seem completely upside down for us, we'd be foolish to dismiss it or scoff at it. Jesus taught it and modeled it more than any other thing in his teachings. We don't hear any more from Jesus' disciples in this story because they clearly didn't believe what Jesus had taught them and did not apply what Jesus had taught them. Peter and John stick around for just a little while. Peter for a little while. The other Gospels tell us how committed they were to Jesus and his call to eternal life. The other Gospels tell us how they reacted when given the opportunity to preserve or lose. They all left him and fled. Is that that not a big deal? The the very men that Jesus had poured himself out to, when faced with this moment of fear and uncertainty, they clicked the unfollow button. They said, we don't want anything to do with you anymore, Jesus. Because you are not who we thought you were. And if who you are is taking us down this dark road, we are not in this, because there is no victory at the end of this road. Man, they must have felt bad three days later. Hindsight's 2020 for us. Our job and our calling is to stare these situations down in life and wonder and have to make the decision. Am I gonna trust unlike the disciples? Am I gonna hold on even when it gets dark? Peter and John make a commitment to stick it out as they had seen what might happen. They had to see what might happen next. The verses tell us in John 12, uh, John 18, verse 12, the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, and then he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So here is Caiaphas who worked so hard to cancel Jesus and his movement, to exalt himself, to protect himself. And I can't help but think that that the, 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 the disciples are not much different than Caiaphas. Caiaphas had a plan to get rid of Jesus to preserve himself. The religious leaders didn't consider Jesus at all because of what he might cost them. Many of the early disciples checked out because they weren't willing to risk their comfort. And now the apostles were falling away one by one because they wanted nothing to do with this dark night. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did the other disciple, that's John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in Peter's thinking okay John I don't really want to go in there you're getting a little too close I'll stand outside and then John is that friend that goes the extra mile and you didn't want him to go the extra mile John says hey I know this girl hey can you bring Peter in I mean Peter of course wants to be near Jesus because hey he's the guy he's the number one follower Peter come on in and Peter's thinking I don't want to come in I don't really want to be here I just feel guilty to leave Peter dreading this entire endeavor. John is committed, but Peter wondered if this is going to end well. Doubted if it would end well. And the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not You are not also one of his disciples, are you? Are, are you one of these guys? Are you one of the twelve? I mean, I don't see but one, but hey, are you number two? Are you one of the disciples? And Peter says, I am not. He doesn't even, you know, do what we do when we lie. We kind of say a bunch of words to try to distract people from the actual question they ask. Peter says, I'm not. Verse 18 is such a powerful verse. The servants and the officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Peter exits the courtroom to this open air waiting area, and he goes and stands by the fire with the soldiers. Now, I don't know, I might be taking this way too spiritual, but, you know, sometimes I have to take a leap of faith. Peter was comfortable in his blatant denial because he was warming himself by the world's fire. He was a little bit too quick to swing his sword. He was a little bit too quick to get by a fire lit by the world. So many times we'll convince ourselves that Jesus is asking too much of us or his will is too impossible because we're surrounding ourselves by the wrong influence. Matthew fills us in on denial number two. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them too, for your accent betrays you, your speech betrays you. You sound like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You've been around Jesus. Clearly, you're one of them. It's impossible for you to deny. Oh, Peter says, well, I'll show you how to deny that. Peter then began to invoke a curse on himself and swear. Peter said, oh, if I sound too Christ-like, let me do as much as I can to sound not Christ-like. And cusses and swears. I do not know this man. And he hears a rooster. Get down to verse 25. Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, "You You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denies and says, I'm not that guy. And immediately, the rooster crows for the final time. He just was too afraid to trust Jesus in this moment because of what it might cost him. Luke concludes the story and says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I mean, that's heavy, isn't it? Turned from the courtyard, looking through the open air, looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me one, two, three times. So the last we hear of Peter for a while, he exits the scene and weeps bitterly. You know, we can trace Peter's downhill slide back to the upper room. Jesus predicted his denial. Peter boasted that he would never do such, but that was his first step in backsliding. He boasted when he should have humbled himself and said, Lord, how can I prevent this? He slept when he should have prayed in the garden when Jesus said, Will you just wait up for me with me for an hour? He fought when he should have trusted, when Jesus said, Put your weapon away. And he ended up denying himself, denying Jesus openly and blatantly. We must be aware of our nature. What Jesus identified in Peter is present in all of us. The darkness that resists the work that God is trying to do that will even fight against the very thing we believe. Of course, this is why Jesus was facing this night without any resistance. He said again in verse verse 11, Put your sword up. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has poured for me? Jesus was not resisting this. He did this to ultimately free us from this short-sighted way of living. Remember when Peter once rebuked Jesus because he was preaching a message of sacrifice and Jesus, of course, rebuked him back and said, you are mindful of the things of this world. He told Peter the night before, earlier this evening, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. What can we learn from Jesus' posture on this darkest night? That surrendering to God's will and trusting His way is always best. But we will never overcome the darkness of this world by peddling its tactics, self-preservation, vengeance, and fear. Only by trusting in Jesus will we ever arrive where we want to be with fewer regrets. And I know that there are not many people that are willing to say, I want that. Most of us would rather cling to our swords and preserve as much as we can. Most of us, would end up just like Peter ended up clutching our sword following at a distance warming by the world fire ready to cut and run as quick as we get the chance you know as i think back at this uh, throughout this story i don't think jesus was surprised by any of this do you i mean he kind of asked for it he surrendered to darkness and of course darkness took his number one follower. That's how powerful it was. This darkness brought out the worst in everyone to bring out the best of the only one who could save the world. Sometimes darkness brings out the worst in us. But just remember the night it got the darkest was the night that it brought out the best and the only one that can do anything to help us and save us and to free us from this captivity. You know, in many cases, Peter's denial was the ultimate proof that we all need a Savior. But on the same token, Jesus' death is the ultimate proof that we have a Savior indeed. So of course, we would all end up like Peter. But Peter ended up like we have ended up, with a Savior who accepted him, restored him, and established him as a leader in the church. One who did not fear, not anymore. Peter would go on to live his life as a leader in the church. In the early days, he had a hard time accepting the call to go to the Gentiles. He was a little bit prejudiced. Eventually, Peter accepted that call as well and ended up as far as Rome. Jesus told Peter, at the end of your life, you will be taken down a road that you resisted. You wouldn't go down this road with me, but at the end of your life, you will go down that road. And of course, legend has it that Peter was set to be crucified, just like his Savior. Peter would not be crucified just like Jesus, though, he thought it was, he was unworthy of that sort of dignity. So he asked them to hang him upside down. Because he didn't deserve the same death as Jesus. He deserved worst. He hung upside down on that Roman cross, knowing that he hadn't lost anything. He was this close to gaining everything. And of course, that's the invitation we all have. The Savior that we all are looking for. Let me pray for you. Father, I gotta confess that I am a scared person. I cling to the things of this world. My words, my weapons, my wealth, and everything else. And to watch you do what you did on this night is just spectacular. And of course, you are God and I'm not, so of course I'm scared. But Lord, if it's in your heart to give me this resolve that you had. To help me to stare fear and death in the eyes and not blink. To know that as you poured out your life for the cause of the kingdom, that I can do the same thing and realize that the darkness will not win. that heaven's light has been set above us all and will never go out. God, thank you for the story of Peter. Thank you for his honesty and his rawness. Thank you that this man, who so many of us are just like, made so many mistakes, yet your grace restored him in full. Father, thank you that we have a Savior indeed. And thank you that on that darkest night, your brightest light would soon be hung and show us all the way to heaven. The way. eternal life. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.